electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money begins right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader line of Guy Dami, Mike Co, Jeff Mills, and Chris Verone. Tonight on Fast, off to the races. Markets surging to end the week with the Nasdaq hitting a record high. But can the record-breaking speed of this rally keep up its pace? We'll go off the charts to get some answers. And how high can airlines fly? The name that just turned in its best week ever, despite a big downgrade. And later, on a special edition of Fast, we're counting down the biggest stories of the week and how they impacted your money from the blowout jobs report to social media choosing their side. We bring you what we call the Fast Five. We start off with today's massive rally on the heels of the stunning May jobs report. Two and a half million jobs added last month, the biggest increase ever. Economists were looking for payrolls to drop by more than 8 million. Major indices are now nearly uh, 50 percent above their March 23rd lows. Four S&P 500 sectors are now positive for the year, with the consumer discretionary space hitting an all-time high. Guy, does this make sense? Amazing. Uh, does it make sense? Not to me, it doesn't, clearly. And, you know, I've been, I've been saying this now, it seems like the last 300 or so S&P points. I'll give Chris Rowan a lot of credit. He's been steadfast. Obviously, Tim's going to be on later. He's been in that camp as well. But, you know, just on the terms of a backdrop of a lot of different things, it doesn't make sense. But if you strip out everything that we've seen, you just start doing the math on this thing. And you look at the S&P 500 uh, market cap over GDP, you're talking about levels that are nosebleed. And nosebleed, I mean 150%. And a lot of people talk of that as the Buffett indicator. And when it gets to those levels, it typically is unsustainable. And then if you just start to do the math on the multiple of this market, and I understand that people say, you know, multiples don't matter right now and earnings don't matter. Earnings do matter. And even if you assume $130 worth of earnings, which I still think is somewhat wishful thinking, you're talking about an S&P 500 trading somewhere north of 24 times at these levels. So Again, I understand the optimism, and today was a great day in terms of that number. I want people, obviously, to get their jobs back and to get those numbers back where they belong in terms of unemployment. But if you just look at this realistically and say to yourself, does this make sense to me? It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, the numbers are going in the right direction. It wasn't just the jobs report this week, but earlier we had the ADP, which seemed to be a precursor to the jobs report, ISM, um, in the United States, PMIs around the world, Mike. So, it, you know, we're going in the right direction, but is this a market that is foreseeing any sort of stutter steps ahead when it comes to, um, you know, we might not be thinking about sustained chronic unemployment that's above what we've seen in, in recent history. If we're pricing in a market that's 8% unemployed, is this a multiple that you would think it should have? Well, the first thing I would say is I, I don't think that most investors are probably looking at basically the turn on this year's earnings or even the next 12 months, really. If you're investing, chances are you're trying to take a look at what your equity book is going to make over the next 7 to 10 years and trying to bring that back. And I realize it's a very th difficult thing to do, um, you know, certainly in the context of what, you know, we've been seeing, I think it's kind of hard to figure out why we would get to these numbers. I think the way I would try to price it is 
I would go back to when we last saw prices at this level and say, what was the market forecasting then? And is it a different situation now? And I think the answer is, clearly it is. Uh, it may not be as bad as people thought it would be a week ago or two weeks ago, but it's certainly a lot worse than what people thought it was going to be when they, we last saw prices at this level earlier this year and before we got, obviously, all of the bad news related to the pandemic. So I think that certainly is it. We, you know, we paired some of our positions today. That's not something we would typically uh, do in, you know, in between our normal sort of investment cycle, but uh, we did because we think there's quite a lot of exuberance built in on, on what is obviously just one bit of news. And that's always a dangerous thing. When the market rips on one bit of news, a bit of news, by the way, that can be revised, uh, that's something that people should maybe think whether they should respond by piling in more or maybe taking a little bit of profits, which is what we did. Jeff, you know, Guy brings up a, an interesting point in terms of calling, you know, from the bottom the direction the markets were going to go. I think a lot of people intellectually believe that the markets were going to tread water, wouldn't bounce back so quickly. Is there a point in time where you say, you know what, this is a painful trade, but I got I to gotta let go of what I believe to happen and go with what is happening in the market? Yeah, I hate to jump onto the dog pile. Maybe Chris will <laughs> jump in and be a little bit more optimistic. But I, I do think that, yes, today was great news, certainly. But I, I think there's plenty of more wood to chop. And I think the market at these levels is clearly pricing in uh, a recovery. So, um, you know, the market's treating the economic shock at this point like it's basically been a bad dream and that we're all of a sudden past it and we're going to have this V-shaped recovery. It's been a jolt off the bottom but the bottom is at really depressed levels. And you mentioned PMI. So we're getting these marginal increases in some of these diffusion indexes like PMI, for example. But I don't know if the recovery we've seen so far is necessarily consistent with a significant profit recovery. And the guy's point, you know, are those profits going to be enough to support multiples where they are today? I'm not so sure. When you think about PMIs, I don't think a lot of people actually frame it in this way. But if you have a 43 one month and then you have a 50 the next month, that 50 means no change from those really depressed levels. So um, I think we have to keep that in mind. And remember, that we're going to need many, many months of plus 50 readings in the ISM, for example, to actually get activity to pick up. Um, relative to valuations, you know, we're getting expensive. We can certainly continue to get more expensive, but the market is vulnerable to negative shocks at this point. And I still think there's enough to worry about that you have to consider valuation in the context of what the market might do if something goes wrong, if things deteriorate with China more, if we get a second wave, so on and so forth. But to answer your question maybe a little bit more specifically, I did want to touch on positioning because it's really important. And for the average investor out there, you're not going to be all in. You're not going to be all out. You're not going to be all long, short. So when we're managing money for institutions, individuals, the positioning is more nuanced than that. So what we've decided to do, if you look at our asset allocation, say relative to the Russell 3000, we have a little bit of a cyclical bend. So we have a little bit more mid and small cap, a little bit of a tilt toward value. So if the market keeps ripping higher, those tilts will actually help our performance. But to hedge, we've reduced the overall equity exposure a little bit below what the typical target would be. So you have that nuance under the surface because we have to be realistic. And you know, there's a lot of uncertainty to your point. We don't necessarily know which direction the market's going to go. Chris Verone, welcome to the Bear Den on this Friday. Um, you've been positive for a long time. Yeah, right. And are you as, as positive as you have been? Yeah, I, I, you know, I just think we need to concede that none of us are smarter than the market. And I think the market has sent a very, very powerful message here. And it just strikes me still to this day how resistant I think a lot of investors are of what the market's been telling us now for six, seven, eight weeks. Now, we learned something really interesting 
over about the last week or two. We learned that this market can continue to work even when tech is not leading. That's a remarkable change from what the last two or three years have looked like. We have lived and died with tech leadership. So I think if anything, rotation is probably the wrong word to describe this market. This seems more like participation is actually broadening out. Because like Apple and Microsoft, they're still at new all-time highs, but they're just not outperforming to the same extent anymore. We're starting to get some of the secondary issues. And you know, Jeff mentions the small caps. I agree entirely. I think the small and the mid caps here entering into the fold is a healthy, healthy change. And remember, small caps didn't peak in February of this year. Small caps peaked two years ago. So they've been in a bear market for two years. And a lot of the cyclical names in there just starting to put in these major bottoms. And you know, if we think about the sequence of this entire event, while the velocity of the whole event was so quick, the order of events was historically very, very common. The market bottomed before we got to the worst part of the data. That's what we see coming out of all these events historically. So I'm trying to listen to the message of the market. This won't be a straight line. It never is. But I think the market has voted pretty loudly here. Yeah, I mean, Guy, that's a very good point. And, and Jeff Mills has talked about this, too, the broadening of this rally that we've seen. We've seen a, a rip higher in financials, particularly the regionals with the yield curve steepening. I mean, you have other things going on where on the downside, you would have said financials are underperforming. Financials are the lifeblood of the economy, and they're telling us something bad. And yet we have them here to the upside. How can you still be bearish? Me personally, I, I can be, well, I mean, for the reasons I gave earlier, listen, I understand uh, what's going on here. I mean, I see it as clear as day. You're talking about not only U.S. historic stimulus and, you know, the don't fight the Fed mantra, but now you have the rest of the world seemingly getting involved as well. And, you know, money is finding these assets. And, you know, just like we saw somewhat indiscriminate selling a couple months ago, and I'm not suggesting it's indiscriminate now, but, you know, there's a euphoria in the market that I think is somewhat misplaced that, Listen, maybe I'm 100 percent wrong. I don't think anything is I mean, things are incrementally better, mm -hmm. but are things better to the extent that we're making all time highs in the Nasdaq with a whisper of the S&P 500? I don't think so. I mean, I just think we're at nosebleed levels. And I think the market is looking past a number of different things, not least of which uh, this U.S. China situation. It's probably going to get amplified given the fact that the market's where it is. I think, as I've said before, the higher the market goes, the more President Trump feels he has um, chips to play with correctly, by the way. And I think he's going to start using them. All right. Um, let's get to the charts here. Chris, why don't you walk us through what you're watching now in terms of levels? Yeah, I brought along three charts. And I just think, number one, in terms of the levels, you know, we're up 40 plus percent uh, off the lows. Let's assume at some point as we move through summer, there's going to be some give back or some consolidation. What is the area that we would look to as viable support? And I think what you'll see is the 50 day moving average is starting to converge on the 200 day. They'll meet somewhere in this 2950 to 3000 range. I think that's going to be a big level as we move through the course of the summer, maybe even a little bit lower, 2900. I think that's going to be a very, very meaningful level of support. But, you know, when we put this rally in context, you know, we're about 50 trading days uh, off the low. And we just go back and say, okay, what are the other best rallies in history? So to date, we're up about 43% uh, off the lows. These are the other five best 50-day rallies that we've seen uh, in history. And if you just look at some of these dates, 
It's the major historical market bottom off the 1982 lows. It's the major 2009 low. It's the major 1974-75 low. So the external momentum that this market has exhibited has really only been matched a few times hey, in history. Now, what you've seen from those periods is you've seen the market consolidate for a few months and then continue to resume higher. So I think we have to look at that as some type of a benchmark here. Now, I brought along one last chart that I think is really, really telling. You know, we spoke earlier about participation starting to really broaden out. The best lens of that or the best way we can show that is the number of stocks making new highs. Uh, today, you had about 65 percent of the S&P make a three-month high. You know, that's right up there with some of the best readings we've seen in history. Now, when you backtest this data, it can be very climactic in the short term, meaning when you get this surge in new highs, markets have a tendency to pause or correct. But when you look at the forward returns from this condition six months in the future, 12 months in the future, you tend to get returns that are so much stronger than the historical averages. So I think this is another data point that argues, hey, this is not just rotation, but participation is actually broadening out. And I know that's something as investors we've been craving for a number of years here. But just to go back to the previous sentence, Chris, there is a chance at this point mm. that you do see some sort of a correction and then a resumption of that move higher, which will yield above average historical returns. Yeah, I think to be fair, the next 100, 150 S&P points are probably anyone's guess here. We just had the most remarkable rally in maybe 100 years worth of financial data. Um, uh, what I think we're trying to focus on here is, are these characteristics, this momentum, both internally and externally, is this what you would want to see coming off a major, major cycle low? And I think the answer is yes. This is exactly the type of breath surge that you'd want to see in these moments. So I have to respect that as a disciple of history, as a disciple of trend and momentum. I have to respect those signals. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think actually not just taking a look at the technicals, but there might be some good fundamental reasons why you see something like this. I mean, one of the things you have to think about is the amount of cash that was undeployed on the sidelines. There is a little bit of a performance anxiety and chasing that goes on in a situation like this. Uh, obviously, a lot of people were w waiting for and trying to anticipate when we would begin to see some light at the end of the tunnel and playing for a bit of a recovery. And of course, some of the stocks that are doing the best, and you know, he was just talking about how there's a broadening, but when we look at the tech sector, a lot of these companies were still doing very, very well. If you look at Microsoft, sure, it's trading 30 times forwards earnings, but of course, it also had 32% EPS growth over the last 12 months reported you know, at the end of uh, April's quarter. So you know, that performance doesn't necessarily suggest that Microsoft, for example, is overpriced. And there is, of course, the alternative investment issue, which is where else do you deploy your capital at a time like this? Real estate's obviously a very dicey proposition. And of course, fixed income is an impossible position. So when you look at that scenario, you realize that investment dollars flowing into financial assets, uh, you know, equities are probably, you know, there's a good case to be made for why we're seeing those flows. It's just that we've had an awfully sharp run. And that's why, you know, we are still long. I want to make that clear. You know, we were talking about it being in a bear camp. We're not in bearish positions, but we did pair our bullish positions mm -hmm. today because I think we've obviously had a very, very sharp run here. All right. Coming up, Apple racing off to new all-time highs today. We will tell you why one analyst just raised his price target on the name and later grabbing for Grubhub. The two companies added to the menu of potential suitors. All that when we come back. Stay tuned. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Two big calls on the street today. Credit Suisse raising its price target on Apple to $295 from $260, that helping shares of the tech giant rocket to an all-time high today. Raymond James, though, is uh, downgrading American Airlines despite the call. That's uh, continued to rise, bringing its gains for the week to a record 75 percent. Um, big moves here, but let's, let's kick things off with, with Apple. Jeff Mills, this is seen as both safety and growth. Where do you stand on it here at an all-time high? Yeah, so it's clearly at a critical price juncture. It's just trying to break out to a new high. And I read the note, and it wasn't necessarily a rousing endorsement. You know, like you said, you move the price up to 295. It's below where it's trading now. Um, so, again, and they also mentioned carrying a higher multiple, and they're giving it some credit for an increase in services momentum. So I would say it's a relatively neutral call on the stock. For me, you know, we still like it as a long-term holding, and we do own it. And I'll, I'll reference a, a survey Piper Sandler did. We talked about it on the show probably two months ago now, but 85% of the teenagers that they surveyed said that they owned iPhones. So this is still a really powerful brand that you want to own. It's still showing that it can diversify away from iPhone. Right around that survey came out, Goldman Sachs actually also downgraded the stock. Um, but they were modeling their sales recovery after the early 2000s recession and the recession uh, in, in the mid-2000s. So the question is, is this time different? And I think the, the labor report this morning obviously begs that question. Um, we, we saw international luxury sales just generally recover pretty quickly uh, in areas that had the virus before us. So, you know, that could be a good sign for maybe even a quicker pickup in sales for Apple. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, exposure to the high-end consumer is probably what you want in this market. So, um, you know, generally positive comments for me. The only thing I would say is that, you know, at over 23 times forward earnings, uh, the stock's not cheap right here. And you probably do still have some near-term headwinds in terms of iPhone demand. So I would at least temper my enthusiasm for the near-term upside of the stock. But longer term, we still like it. What if the new iPhone is delayed till much later this year? I mean, that's, I, Guy, I don't know what you're doing last night, but if you caught the Broadcom conference call, the CEO, Hock Tan, had mentioned a major product delay at a major North American uh, phone manufacturer or something like that. It's, right. a, it's like a cryptic way that he often refers to as Apple without naming Apple. And so if we are to believe based on that cue that the iPhone, the newest iPhone is going to be later in the year and not September as it normally is, does that impact this run here? You would think it would, right? But, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you go back and remember months ago when Apple said they were going to have problems in China on that Friday, uh, Stock closed at 323, I think, all-time high at the time. That Monday, stock opened at 316-ish. By Tuesday, it was making a new all-time high. So Apple is somehow impervious to what usually is bad news. Now, to Jeff's point, so much of this move higher has been multiple expansion. Now, with that said, 
some of that multiple expansion is justified as they move more towards a services company. It's just a question of how much. So, you know, 295 is the price target, to Jeff's point again. That's still lower than where we're trading. And as much as Apple is sort of a buy and hold name, it's been an incredibly great trading stock over the last few years. You've had huge moves both to the downside and upside. So, you know, you're getting towards levels again, not only in broader market, but in Apple, where you have to consider is this time to sort of take some profits and look to buy it back cheaper? I think it is. All right. Let's move on to American Airlines. Raymond James saying the stock, quote, priced to perfection. Um, interestingly, this got a credit downgrade earlier this week, Mike, to deeper into junk territory. It also announced that it's going to increase its capacity next month. Um, do you think this, I mean, this, this seems like a crazy move? And given there's a lot of short interest, maybe it's not entirely surprising, but still an outsized move for this one. Yeah, I mean, you, you actually hit right on it. I mean, you have a situation, in any situation like this, where you obviously have a company that's in deep distress, you have a high short interest, there could be capital structure plays at work. It's a dangerous place for the just conventional equity investor to decide that they want to try to ride on that momentum because there's still considerable considerable risk here. There's considerable leverage, and that's the reason why you see moves as sharp as this one, but I wouldn't chase it. Your take, Chris? Yeah, I tend to agree here on this one. I mean, this is 10 to 20 in two or three days. We're back to where the stock really broke down from in January and February. So that's where we would say there are probably a lot of people who wish they sold it uh, back then. They've made their money back. They're probably natural sellers here. So I think at least tactically, uh, this is a better sale than a buy. Guy, are you raising your hand? Are you trying to get my attention or what's what's going on here? I, well, no, class. I'm trying to be respectful school. in this world. I, I, you know, I don't just blurt. I'm not a blurter. I've okay. never been a blurter. Well, but just to sort of one quick point, look at the volume today in American Airlines traded 425 million shares. It wow. typically trades, I think, 70. So huh. if you're just looking at volume for a sense of maybe, you know, an upside capitulation, which you also see. Today's as good as it gets. All right. Well, we have got a lot more fast coming your way in a special 6 p.m. hour. Danger in the data. Does today's blowout jobs report tell the true story of economic health? Fast Money's back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Grubhub topping the tape today on news. The company has attracted a couple new suitors as takeover talks with Uber have stalled. CNBC learning the company is fielding interest from at least two European players in the space, Delivery Hero and JustEatTakeaway.com. Now, Grubhub is still in talks with Uber, although antitrust concerns 
pose a risk. Already, this is one of these uh, shelter-in-place stocks, Guy, that really benefited. Um, this can only help, I would think, in terms of getting a better price if, if the Uber talks are really going on. Yeah, and there are places that we've talked about. I mean, not, I'm not suggesting it's been Grubhub, but if you look at the stock, you say, does it have more room? Yeah, I would suggest it does have more room. You know, this was a $145 name, I think, last fall. Not that that necessarily matters, but people are going to get trapped here, and I think it has room up to 80 bucks. So I think, again, it's one of those names that people have learned about during these last couple of months, and they're not going to flee when things get back to normal. So I think you stay with this name, Mel. Yeah. Chris, what do you make of the charts here? Yeah, I think Guy has this one spot on. I mean, this is a name that, you know, like a lot of the small caps, have been in a bear market for two years. This peaked in the summer of 18. So you've had just two terrible years. You've started to put in this major, major low. I think any pullbacks, you want to be uh, very aggressive here. This is putting in that major bottom. All right. It's time for the final trade already. Let's go around the horn. Mike Coe. Yeah, so the markets obviously had a very big rally here. You don't have to sell your stocks, but you can look to sell some covered calls against them. And you can tune into Options Action in just a minute to learn more about that. That's called a tease. Jeff Nels. So as a trade, I would be a seller of the IBB here. And the call is really purely technical. I think the price action was really interesting this week. We talked about it on Monday, but it's right up against that July 2015 high. stalling out. It's 15% above its 200-day moving average. So I think you give some back. I'd look at one three on the downside. Chris. Rio Rio, Rio Tinto is coming alive, natural resource stocks. Guy, I will see you at 6 o'clock for a special edition. Meantime, Options Act is up next. Hey, everybody, and a special hello to all you Mad Money fans. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim is off today, but you are in luck. We've got a special edition of Fast Money lined up for you. We're calling it the Fast Five. We're hitting the five hottest stories that impacted your money this week. With us tonight, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Dan Nathan. Good to see you all. All right, let's get right to it. We begin with a monster rally on Wall Street. Stocks surging today on the back of a blowout jobs report. Two and a half million jobs added last month, the biggest increase ever. Economists were looking for a loss of more than eight million jobs. So much, much better than expected. But is the real read on what's uh, happening with jobs? Is it that report? Let's bring in Steve Leeson because we've got to go straight to the uh, senior economics reporter for this. Um, Steve, what are some of the reasons why we might not trust this data? And I'm, I guess I'm starting off with a bias because this, this seems like really good news when we're just off a huge pandemic. Um, I think uh, a reason is not to trust it is we're in the middle of an historic economic shutdown and apparently on the upside of that shutdown. And nobody's ever seen this kind of thing before. We hadn't seen 20 million people lose their job in a single month. Uh, and we really had no idea how the jobs would come back. Um, all of the other indicators that we were looking at suggested there would be massive job losses. Uh, and it's well to put that into perspective. Remember the... Uh, forecast was for minus 8.3. It came in 2.5. So, folks, you can do the math at home on both sides of the zero line. It's nearly 11 million jobs is the number that the uh, consensus was off by. And Wall Street was off by it a bit, too, if you don't mind my saying, because they uh, had a nice rally when they realized that maybe we're going to be coming back sooner than we thought. Look, it could be low response rate. It could be a bias towards firms that were existing and reporting. Or it could just be that we had two things happening, Melissa. We have the reopenings happening, especially in places that may not be so well uh, observed by, by people on Wall Street. That could have added a bunch of jobs. And plus, you have the PPP, which caused people to bring back their workers in order to be 
uh, to get their loans forgiven. Steve, thanks for being here and staying up late with us, as they say. I mean, you know, typically you get in situations like this and environments like this, you'll get the numbers will be recalibrated on the next uh, iteration. Sure. But my point is, or I guess my question is, does it even matter? I mean, this is one of those things where the headline is on the front page of the New York Times and the recant could potentially be <laughs> on page six of the, of the third, third fold. My point is, will people take in that consideration if, in fact, it is recalibrated? You know, I've always wondered when the market trades the truth, because... <laughs> In a funny way, uh, this is always the case, Guy. You have a number that comes, and this number is going to be revised next month. It'll be revised the month after that, and it'll be revised in about a year's time as well. Uh, so we'll find out what really happened. And in, all, in the fog of this shutdown, you can imagine there's a lot of things happening that we're unaware of and that will come back and be revised. I do think, though, uh, you know, my basic view of life for what it's worth is that markets reflect economic fundamentals, and over time, the economic fundamentals uh, come out. And... Uh, if we are indeed bringing back workers, look, there's a lot of things to square here. And, and I'm coming on here not knowing the answers to these things, but, but having spent the day trying to figure it out. Um, you had something like 12 million jobless claims between the reporting periods of the two jobs reports. We don't know what happened to those. It, it may be that you had 12 million jobs plus the two or half million, which means you had 14 and a half million hiring. That may have happened. Um, we are looking very closely at, at um, high-frequency data. None of this high-frequency data suggested to us that there was going to be a massive increase in jobs here. So it, it's a puzzle, um, but these are historic times, and we just sharpen our pencils and go back and do it again. Hey, Steve, it's Dan. Um, hey, quick one. You know, at, at the bottom of this press release this morning, the, the business and labor statistics is, there's a note about um, what seems to be a miscalculation in the main numbers, and they're talking about a large number of workers who are classified as employed but absent from work. Yeah. They go on to clarify that number, and, and they suggest that yeah. if, it was, if the miscalculation, it could have been 3% higher um, as far as the unemployment. So maybe the economists weren't as far off as the headline reads. Well, no, they, they weren't. I will say that happened last month where I believe the error was estimated to be around 5 percentage points. So, yeah, uh, it, it would be 3%, 3 percentage points higher to 16%. Um, <clears throat> but fundamentally, I'm not sure that matters much. My guess, and you guys will tell me if I'm right about this, the market really queued off the payroll number. The 2.5 million was the number people were watching. The unemployment rate is terrible. Uh, by the way, it remains well above the, the, the great financial uh, crisis as well, quite a bit. Uh, the numbers are still terrible. I will tell you this. Two ways to look at this if you want to play a little alphabet economics. Um, on the one hand, what you have is you have a V-shaped recovery in job growth. You went down two and a half, you went down 20 million, you came up positive two and a half million. But overall, it's still an L. And I'll show you why if you look at it. We're down 20 million, we got back two and a half. So it's just 11%. There's still a very long way to go. And I don't think anything of that really changed today. There's still a long way to go. I think the market is now saying, you know what, it's coming back faster than we thought. <clears throat> no, nothing changed today, Steve and, and, and folks. But I, I, I think, first of all, if you think about the, the extraordinary size, there's never been a larger forecasting miss than this number. I, and, and it tells you 
uh, where we are in terms of where forecasting can be in the next three to six, six months. We have zero understanding. Yeah. Um, the underemployment rate, Steve, too, I think this is where you're getting at. The U6 is 22 is percent or so. So, um, you know, the, the, yeah. the other side to all this, though, it seems to me, is that you've got a Fed that we now know stuck around too long. And I, I think, Steve, you're 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 always very thoughtful. I wouldn't say you're always defending the Fed, but I think you're thoughtful uh, on where monetary policy um, has had to uh, you know, be stickier. Uh, but we're often very frustrated on on fast money, talking about how the Fed has overstayed their welcome. Well, I mean, no matter what happens now, um, I don't think this Fed's going anywhere. And, and therefore, markets are, are, are saying we, we kind of get this. Um, we've seen this before. Uh, and, and therefore, it almost doesn't even matter what the it, economics it, are. This almost goes to, Steve, the point that, that you had made earlier when we were chatting on, on Power Lunch today, and that is this just the data show, no matter how flawed you think this data is or how valid the two and a half million jobs added you think is, um, this shows you that that it's working, that the stimulus measures that have taken over, everything that Fed has done, everything that Congress has done is sort of working, and maybe it'll buy us some time. And maybe Wall Street is believing that enough yeah. time is being bought to get us to the other side, and that's what this rally is about. Maybe not necessarily about two and a half million jobs actually being added. I, I look. I don't really have. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for traders today. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what you're <laughs> trading on. Um, I, you know, I, I looked at the percentage of the S and P 500 that has no earnings guidance. Um, and I think what you're trading on is a broad structure of a rebound. And my best guess is that structure of that rebound is divorced from the high frequency idea of is it coming back today, tomorrow or next week. You guys who have to not you guys, whoever of you is long the market has to be in with both feet and saying it's coming back and it's coming back to a reasonable place. And in the time before it comes back, I've got all of this support from the Fed, as Tim suggested, um, there's a question now whether or not we get additional congressional support, because I think this jobs report makes that a little bit less likely. I'm not really sure where Congress is going to be on Monday after this number. Mm -hmm. You could imagine some Republicans would be less likely to, to endorse that. Um, but right now, the, the, the game is this. It's going to come back. We're going to end the, we're going to end the shutdown. We're going to end the, the social distancing. And Congress is going to and the Fed are going to bridge us to that place. Yeah. Um, and that place could be six months from now. Or it could be four months from now. But I don't think you care on that, because if you're playing for next month, I don't know what to tell you. I don't want to put you on the spot, Steve, but I will. Uh, you're, you're a smart guy. You're musically inclined. And this is going to be a, a theme that we're going to pick up later on in the show. But if this jobs report were a song, what would it be? Oh, I, you know, the whole thing I'm thinking of is Highway 61 Revisited. You know, um, nice. it's just a surreal <laughs> A right. surreal moment, you know, and, 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 and the, the line that I came up with this afternoon was, uh, you know, the roving gambler was very bored, uh, uh, was trying to create the next world war, asked a promoter who nearly fell off the force, said, I've never engaged in this kind of thing before. And that's where I am <laughs> as an economics reporter right now. Well put. <clears throat> Steve Leisman, enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Um, Dan Nathan, we, we ask these questions not to be skeptical of the jobs report per se, or not to say that we don't want a recovery. We all want a recovery to happen. Don't get us wrong. But if we are believing that the stock market is actually rallying on this jobs report, there are certain things about this report that we do have to understand better, right? Yeah, I, I you know, listen, I asked that question to Steve because I know it's going around the web as far as like what is the real unemployment rate. And, you know, mm -hmm. when you hear things like even 
that this number, while it's better than expected, is still higher than the great financial crisis, and it's very near where we were at the depths of the, um, of the Great Depression nearly 100 years ago, you have to start scratching your head. We also know that there's a two-pronged thing here going. Like, obviously, all that monetary and fiscal stimulus is really helpful, but investors have also gotten really confident that there's going to be a vaccine or at least some very good therapies for the reason for this economic disaster that we've had. So you put those things together and there's an awful lot of optimism. Um, I'm just not certain that, you know, that, that, that it's about as clear as the stock market is telling. That's, that's my only skepticism. And listen, I'll be that guy. I'll be the one person on this panel that will kind of try to, try to scratch that itch a little bit. I think our viewers deserve to hear that skepticism no because we can't all be positive all the time. Why are you giggling, Tim? I just, what a surprise that Dan's going to scratch that that somewhat cynical itch. But uh, <laughs> no, he, the, the 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 approach to fundamentals here, uh, I think we're all saying has has gone out the window. Uh, I think if you look at the markets move today and you look at where we are relative to where expectations were that we could go. Um, this is this is all about a market that has been defying this wall of worry. Uh, today is is only going to further embolden people that say, actually, look, the fundamentals don't make sense right now. But we we heard from every analyst and we heard from every company that the next year and a half of, of earnings almost don't matter. Uh, and with the VIX going below 25, and I think it's going to stay below 525 for the relative future. I, I can't say it's not going to uh, tack ebb and flow, but uh, Federal Reserve means lower volatility mm -hmm. and they're not going anywhere. Yep. Um, we have that banner at the bottom of the screen, danger in the data, Guy. And you had mentioned recalibration, uh, revisions to this jobs report. And the reason why we're putting a question mark there is because is, is there a danger in, in rallying off of this positive data point and then eventually getting a revision that shows that it wasn't actually as good? And that could be for the jobs report. It could be for lots of other data points that we've rallied off of so far. The danger in the data is perhaps that we get data that actually showed this all wasn't happening in terms of the recovery. Yeah, but it's like, it's, it, I think you make a great point. That's why I asked Steve, I mean, you'll get, you'll get condemned on the front page of the New York Times and, and you'll get exonerated on page eight and some, some section of it that nobody reads. And I think that's the point about this job numbers. You know, people are looking at this highlight number today and saying we have the all clear. And if these revisions come, I don't think people will really take it into consideration. But, you know, since you mentioned the song thing, and I know we're going to play with it later, <laughs> you know, Charlie Rich, you familiar with Charlie Rich, Mel? Probably yeah, sure. not, but I'm a big fan of Charlie Rich. And he, <laughs> he sang a song behind closed doors. And to Dan's, point, to Dan's point, behind closed doors right now, don't think for a minute that CEOs and boards aren't talking about, hey, guess what, we've done really well with fewer employees how are we going to make this stick six months from now? And I hate to say it, but I think we're looking at a much different employment landscape as we get closer to, let's say, the fall. And that's just reality, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd like to make one last point, okay? I'm not in New York City right now. I've been in New York City with my wife and kids until Monday. We left on Monday because of the riots in the street. There were storefronts blown out in my neighborhood in, in the Flatiron all over the place. Didn't think it was appropriate to be there. But we've been sheltering in place for New York. New York has been a ghost town. New York is one of the biggest consumer hubs, business hubs in our country. And it's not, I'm telling you people, it's not coming back anytime soon if there's not a vaccine. The people are not coming back. The restaurants are not coming back. 
The investment banks are not having their people back. It, the list goes on and on. And to the guy's point about efficiencies and the work from home and, and our friends at Slack and Zoom and all this sort of stuff, there's some fundamental things that have just changed. And it was a black swan. So I just don't think the stock market is reflecting that right now when you mm -hmm. think about the costs that are going to be associated with a lot of these businesses operating at much lower capacity levels. So I'm just telling you, as a guy on the streets, Things are bad in one of the biggest places in our country, one of the places that is our you know, business hub, um, you know, tourism. The list goes on and on and on. And that's just a fact. Get off Twitter and start talking to people and start understanding what their lives and livelihoods look like. And I think that you will not celebrate this sort of jobs data the way the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ did today. That's just my personal view. I'm not telling you to sell stocks. I'm not telling you to go to cash. I'm not your broker. I'm not your hedge fund manager. I'm not your wealth manager. I'm just telling you, talk to people. And the reality is very different than what the stock market is telling you today. All right. Well, we are just getting started here on Fast Money 5. Up next, we're tackling four more big money stories from this week, including the protests that rocked the nation. How did corporate America respond? We'll dig into that next. Welcome back. This week, a crisis in America. Protests, both peaceful and violent, gripping the nation and shining new light on racism and inequality. And throughout the week here on CNBC, we've heard from some of the most powerful and influential voices in the business community. Here is their call to action. You know, we'd like to think we're beyond this as a country, but obviously we're not. And we've been bad parents uh, as a nation. We haven't taken care of not just our children, but everybody else's as if they are our own. We're better than this as a country. In the long run, what's in our enlightened economic self-interest is that for all Americans to, to feel a participant, to feel like they're participants in our economy. You know, I'll just say joblessness leads to hopelessness. Hopelessness leads to what we see in the streets. One of the big issues has been it's all been black leaders historically talking about these issues. And it's time for, for white leaders to, to stand up. And, and really speak and encourage action. Business leaders have to start to lead. What has happened in the past, they've trailed. Citizens have been the ones who've taken to the streets and started to scream and started to scream about bad behaviors, either bad policing or bad policy. Businesses can actually be either partners with them and in, in the ideal sense, they could lead some of this discussion. They could become positive forces in the community. We need to be even more deliberate um, about making sure that we're breaking down the barriers. Uh, implicit bias is one of them, uh, but there are others. There are structural barriers in place um, that, that keep um, you know, these disparities in place. This isn't about just one tragic event. It's about what's happened in our country for, for a long, long time and what's happening today. We must make this a moment of transformation. We cannot allow uh, this to slip away from us and hear what people are saying, understand what people are saying, that they want reform when it comes to the economy, policing, uh, criminal justice, and a number of other areas. Let's bring in Mike Jackson, founder of 2050 Marketing. And Mike, we certainly have heard from a lot of companies, a lot of CEOs throughout this week. Um, they all mean well. They, they say some very inspiring things. But at the same time, you say some of them are not getting it right. Why not? Yeah, you know, it's it's just very important that these companies care more about the communities and the employees, customers, equally as they do profits. Uh, some of them in the past have put a lot more emphasis on their, their, their bottom line. And I think this should represent a huge opportunity 
for these companies, specifically those located in the major metropolitan areas, to get closer emotionally with their communities. You mentioned the focus on the bottom line. I mean, isn't that the job? And I'm sure I'm going to get pushed back on Twitter for this um, and from people who are watching this. But isn't that the job of the CEO? Yes, I agree completely that a CEO and a company should care about the communities they are in. They should care about their employees. They should make sure that they are breaking down barriers and making sure that their workforce is representative of the communities they, they serve and operate in. At the same time, the job of the company is to do right by shareholders. No, you're exactly right, Melissa, but hopefully 2020 has taught us the importance of being engaged with our community. So you go from the COVID-19 situation to the uh, George Scott murder, people are out of work, as you guys were just talking about in the previous sector. I don't believe that these solutions reside with government and or the local leaders. We've got some very, very bright minds out there. I think Steve Ballmer said it best. Some of the white leaders, especially CEOs, and really bright and very talented people, they need to embrace these communities and get more emotionally involved. I mean, I love seeing um, Jack Dorsey at Twitter giving $3 million to Colin Kaepernick's organization, but I would have loved to hear Jack say that he was going to join Colin's board. He's going to give Colin some guidance. He's obviously a very bright, very dynamic, very innovative leader. And we need those types of people in partnership with the people in the community that are trying to make change. Hey, hey Mike, you know, you mentioned that 2020, it seemed to be an inflection point in some ways, the way that business leaders are thinking about their responsibility. You know, Mel just brought up that their fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders, but they also have lots of other stakeholders, right? Their customers, their employees, that sort of thing. And you just mentioned Jack Dorsey. You know, there's a lot in Silicon Valley. I think Mark Benioff from Salesforce, Stuart Butterfield um, from Slack, they are using their social channels to, to really make their feelings, their personal feelings known. And I think that in those three examples, you know, a lot of those stakeholders should feel really good about that. They're making donations, they're being active on their social channels. And I think the private sector has really led on a lot of social issues this year. Do you think that there needs to be more of a private um, and public sector kind of um, attitude towards fixing these problems, or is that just not necessary, or is not possible in this environment right now? No, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think we've got some really, really good stuff going on in pockets around the country, specifically a lot of the innovators in, in Silicon Valley. I live here in Los Angeles. We've got people like Steve Ballmer as part of our community. I just think it needs to be embraced uh, a lot deeper in the organizations. One of the concepts that I've been toying around for about 10 years is the whole notion that if these large organizations, whether it be public or private, um, whether it be a traditional legacy-based organization or Silicon Valley uh, innovator, I would like to see these corporations add to the performance accountabilities for their top leaders that they reach out in their community and personally get involved with nonprofits with with their local mayors there are a lot of really good young mayors out there trying to do things I think these folks can assume leadership roles they obviously bring a lot of talent so that's the thing that I think is is really the the, the missing piece is in addition to the money in addition to the support in addition to the leadership at the top 
get deeper into these organization ranks and have these individuals embrace these communities and bring the sheer innovation and intelligence that they bring to their jobs every day to solve these problems within our communities. Yeah, we'd have a lot of power behind uh, solving these problems, that's for sure. Mike, we appreciate your time. Mike Jackson of 2050 Marketing. We've got a lot more ahead. Two big stories down, three more to go up next. Taking a stand, we'll tell you what caused a big stir this week in the social space, all that and much more when we come right back. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We're counting down our top five stories of the week. Two down, three to go. But first, we've got to take a fast break. We had a monster week on Wall Street. And we alluded to this with Steve Lee when we were chatting with him, if this were a song. So if this rally were a song, Tim, what would it be? Yes. <laughs> this is obvious to me. This is the clash. Should I stay or should I go? Obviously, the debate for investors is after this. Uh, this is the biggest rally in history. S&P is overbought. But as the song says, if I stay, there will be trouble. And if I go, it could be double. Uh, and I think that's the sense. If you stay in this market, uh, obviously, we are setting up for some type of a pullback. There needs to be. But, but the fear is missing out. Uh, and, and in some sense, for a lot of investors, certainly for, for professional investors, uh, that's double trouble. Because if you miss this kind of a rally and you're in cash, you're fired. So I just think this is an extraordinary time. And The Clash was a breakout album for The Clash. It was not their best album or their best song, um, but it was a monster, as was this move in the market. Well, let me just tell you something, Mel. I mean, Tim brings up The Clash, and Tim was probably at the same concert I was at Shea Stadium. And The Clash was. was a warm-up band. And in my opinion, they'll always be a warm-up band. And quite <laughs> frankly, they got booed off the stage because everybody was there to see The Who. So my song is Won't Get Fooled Again. Because if you listen to the lyrics, 1971 is when Pete and Roger wrote this song. It is ringing true today. And I won't get fooled again. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Well, guess what? The new boss and the Fed is the same as the old boss, the same old tired things that they're doing. And I get what's going on in the stock market. But you know what, Mel? The Clash is a second-rate band. The Who rocks. And I'm not going to get fooled again. <laughs> well, I... Can I respond? You know what? I'll let Dan go because there's more rock and roll here. But I mean, please, they, you know. Um, well, the, the bottom listen, line is, Tim, a I, lot I of people have been fooled. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, well, I was just going to OK Boomer both of you guys. And I was going to talk about uh, a band called the Foo Fighters. I don't know if you guys uh, have come across yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I would go with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would go with Everlong by the Foo Fighters because you just got to stay long, I guess, if you've been in this uh, roller coaster over the last few months. I mean, listen, obviously, I'm a bit more skeptical here. The fact that the S&P 500 is within 5% of the all-time highs made in February, the NASDAQ is making uh, matched highs, you know, it just speaks to buy the dip, I guess, all the time, stay long forever. Um, you know, listen, that's not exactly how it works because we have to remember that a lot of people, a lot of investors make a lot of mistakes at tops and they make a lot of mistakes at bottoms and that kind of puts you in uh, behind the eight ball a little bit unless you stay ever long. Very nice musical selections, gents. <laughs> Coming up, the countdown continues. What else was on our traders' news feed this week? Yep, that's a clue of what's to come. We got much more in this special edition of Fast Money when we come right back. Welcome back to the Fast Five. We're counting down the five big stories of the week. Next up, reopening risks. Could a second COVID wave be coming? Las Vegas, 
back open for business this week. This was a scene at the D Casino. You can see the floor is packed. This is just a couple days ago, by the way, a few hours after opening. Um, the floor is packed. Very few people are wearing masks. It doesn't look like any social distancing is taking place. Meantime, Universal Orlando is reopening to the general public today with limited capacity. And the NCAA athletes are back on campus, but already some are testing positive. For instance, the University of Alabama football players returned this week for workouts. At least five have already tested positive for the coronavirus. Let's bring in Meg Terrell. Um, Meg, this is always a concern with reopening. Good to see you, Meg. Um, But what are people saying about the second wave based on the reopenings we've seen so far? Well, they do say it's pretty early. I mean, if you look at the data, we do see that cases or hospitalizations are accelerating in at least nine states. Uh, So that is concerning. But, you know, we talked with Dr. Fauci today about whether a fall wave is inevitable. And he said, while cases will continue and that's inevitable, a big fall wave, he said, doesn't have to be inevitable if we respond to it in the right way and implement the measures needed. But another thing that I've talked with health experts about that they're really concerned about is the potential seasonality of this virus. So if we see in a couple weeks that suddenly cases really do collapse and sort of stay that way for the summer, does that then bode for or a big uptick in the fall like we see with flu and then coinciding with flu being an even bigger problem. So there are definitely major concerns around that, Mel. Right. And I, I guess the key will be a couple weeks. I mean, right, it's it's a 14-day period theoretically. And if things are just starting to reopen now, I guess the key will be what do, what do things look like? What do the infection rates look like in a couple weeks or three weeks from now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have some early data from some of the states that have been opening, and you do see in some of those southern states that cases are increasing. Uh, But experts do want a few more weeks of data to really get a good handle on that. Emma, if you can't tell where I am, um, what's your sense on the medical industry, the healthcare industry's uh, ability to restock, refuel, uh, resuscitate, and, and prepare for this? You know, my sense is we were so off-footed by this virus, unfortunately, um, that that was part of the devastation. Obviously, um, something we've never seen before. Um, but the, the pendulum back that we may or may not have will be met with different consciousness, different approach, and, 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 and systems that are restocked. Can you just talk about that? Because that, I believe, is giving people some confidence to get out there. Yeah, that's a really important question, Tim, and I think we're going to see how much was learned from the first time around. Uh, You know, we have been hearing about efforts that are being taken to ramp up on the supplies that we saw shortages of to sort of do longer term supply orders so that uh, there are incentives to make sure that these things are in place. Uh, And then, of course, come fall, uh, there is some hope that there will be potentially new drugs available, uh, vaccines even being tested on wide scales. So the tool set should be different, but we have to see how the industry uses this time if we do have a lull and hope that they are able to use it wisely and really get prepared. Meg, you do an amazing job with this stuff. Is there anything in history that, I mean, I know people talk about the Spanish flu, but for example, polio, I think, is about as close a a, a comparison as you can make in terms of people keeping their kids home and that type of thing. Just in terms of history, Does that sort of line up? And if that's the case, what type of timeline are we looking at potentially? Because that lasted for quite some time. Yeah, it really did, uh, Guy. And that's a really interesting question. You know, with polio, I think one of the major differences is 
if you look back at the coverage of that vaccine race and what Dr. Jonas Salk was doing, when his trial proved to be effective, it was on the front page of every newspaper and you know the entire country cheered um, and people wanted to get that vaccine. Right now, you know, of course, there will be a major contingent that cheers if and when we get an effective vaccine. But there's also, you know, a, a large contingent of people who are very skeptical about getting one. We had a poll this week uh, that showed 21 percent of people across the country said absolutely not. They would not get a vaccine. Um, and the numbers are probably are similar to the number of people who get flu shots now, which is not enough to confer herd immunity, which is when you can protect everybody by enough people being immune. Um, so it's a really interesting comparison, but historical examples of timelines for vaccine development, the shortest was four years, and that was for mumps in the 60s. Hmm. Meg, um, thanks for joining us. We know you're busy because you're prepping for the 7 o'clock show tonight. What do you have coming up? We've got a great show. We are going to dig into antibody drugs that are on their way. We're going to be talking with George Yankopoulos from Regeneron. We're also going to be having a discussion about these historic protests and the fact that they're happening as the pandemic is exposing the health inequities in our system. And we're also going to be having a debate about the profitability around Gilead's remdesivir and how much companies should be profiting during a pandemic, something I know you've talked a lot about, Mel. Yep. All right, Meg, thank you. We look forward to it. Meg Terrell joining us. Um, we ask about the second wave because obviously with the markets here, scaling new heights, uh, Guy Dami, this is a concern. Or will it, it not be? Because we're sort of used to it. We've become inured to it. Yeah, I, it has to be a concern, number one. But number two, a concern that nobody's talking about. And again, I'm not suggesting I'm right. But over the last three months, has the U.S. consumer, which is 73 percent of this economy, have they learned to do more with less? And are they going to come back with the ferocity that we saw uh, last year in terms of spending? I don't know the answer to that. But to not count it as a potential concern, I think it's just foolish. A lot of people think there's going to be this huge pent-up demand, and it's going to come raging back. I think the other side of that is... Maybe people have learned to live with less, and maybe that's the real thing we should be worried about going forward. You, you know, Mel, it's, it's interesting. You know, Meg just mentioned the health inequities. They're going to cover that at 7 o'clock. I'm going to be sure to watch that. It'll be interesting because I know a lot of people who think a lot of these market gains are powered by, you know, this, the Federal Reserve and some of the actions we're taking there. I know Guy is a strong believer that you think that that, that the economic inequality that's being caused by a lot of the Fed actions every time they need to bail us out. Now, this health crisis was a black swan, but we maybe really start have to think about what the heck is going on here in America? We're technologically the most advanced in the world, one of the wealthiest in the world, yet we have 28% of the infections of this disease. We have 28% of the deaths globally and only 4% of the population. How can that be? How did we like, get so, why, did, why are we so heavily inflicted? And so I think it's just really interesting that this, these two crises have come together here and they're really highlighting some major inequality in our country. There's two things I would just say. I, you know, first of all, unfortunately, I, I, I don't say those numbers are not correct, Dan, but we don't know what the numbers are. So, so uh, I, I, I would agree that I think um, as an American and believe we are number one in science and health and, and technology. We are. Um, but but I, I think the approach we took 
um, was one where we weren't entirely prepared. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, I don't think anyone's out there uh, intentionally trying to manipulate the numbers. I don't think we know the numbers. Um, I, I don't think we really know. If anything, um, the numbers may be skewed by the fact that we may be doing more testing than other parts of the world. So I think that we're not going to know what the numbers were, just like that payroll report. Uh, we're going to get revisions and revisions. I, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, I do agree on the you know, inequality in terms of what financial oppression from the Fed really has done. Um, but I would also say the stock market back where it is is going to give consumers confidence to get back out there for as long as it stays here. Um, let's be clear. Um, the Federal Reserve and policymakers target the wealth effect that comes from asset prices. And right now, asset prices have come storming back, with the exception of, unfortunately, our property values in New York City that I'm sure no one really cares about. Uh, but the reality is there's a lot of people that feel like they're doing pretty decent right now. And, and I think that that plays into, into consumer spending. All right. Coming up. We reveal our final two big stories of the week, one causing a stir on social media and the other creating wealth from the couch. What are they? Stick around to find out much more on this special edition of Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to the Fast Money 5. We are hitting the five biggest stories of the week. Our next story, taking a social stance, big rift in the social media space this week. And it all started when Twitter flagged a couple of President Trump's tweets with fact-checked labels. Now, Snap came out and said they would do the same thing, but Facebook taking the opposite approach. And we actually just got a fresh statement from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. So let's get to Julia Borson, who joins us on the phone. Julia. Melissa, Mark Zuckerberg reversing his stance. Previously, he had defended the decision to not censor or put any warning on President Trump's comments that could be considered as inciting violence. Now he is saying in a post on Facebook, quote, we are going to review our policies allowing discussion and threats of state use of force to see if there are any amendments that we should adopt. Um, he says he it details the first is around instances of excessive use of a police force um, and also saying they're going to review policies around voter uh, voter suppression, saying the second case um, that they're going to be reviewing is um, when a country has ongoing civil unrest or violent conflicts, certainly referring to the protests we've seen recently. So going on to say they're going to be reviewing policies about voter suppression and also how they will handle violating uh, content, whether there's a, some third option other than just pulling it down um, or leaving it up. Back over to you, Melissa. Would it be too early or unfair to say that he's backtracking? Oh, this certainly seems to be backtracking. He had this town hall with employees, Facebook employees earlier this week. There was a lot of outcry on Twitter as well as on LinkedIn from Facebook employees that were very frustrated with Zuckerberg's decision not to flag that post from the, the president. So this is him acknowledging the concerns of the public as well as from his employees, trying to find a third option, some new alternative in terms of how Facebook could handle this. Um, so I think we could look towards potentially having some sort of labeling mm -hmm. on um, on posts from heads of state that have huge reach that he, you know, Zuckerberg has said he wants free speech. He wants people to say what political leaders are thinking and saying, um, but to put that within some context. All right. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Guy Dami, earlier this week we were, we were saying that Facebook was, uh, you know, better positioned because of the stance it, it took. Um, can we say the opposite now? We, yeah, well, quickly, we also said Mark Zuckerberg was in a lose-lose situation in terms of how he set up. And that the president, yeah. and it's not political, but, you know, this, there was a genius to this because if somehow he gets, if the president gets flagged by Facebook, he's going to use that as a battle cry. And if he doesn't, he has the platform at his disposal. 
win-win for the president, lose-lose for Mark Zuckerberg. In terms of the stock, though, you know, until advertisers start to flee, which you have not seen, you have to stay with this name. And I think we've been pretty somewhat steadfast in that belief. I am not a huge fan of Facebook, and at a certain point, it probably is getting expensive. But in terms of the advertisers and, and the users, nobody seems to be going anyplace anytime soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan either. I, I, I will say that um, this is pretty extraordinary because Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook looked like they were digging in during a difficult time of pressure after basically saying last year that they were not going to be political arbiters. Um, and look, there are a lot of people uh, that just believe that political battles should be fought in the open. This is a First Amendment dynamic. Let let people decide um, as politicians either sink their own boats or, or shoot themselves in the foot or not. Um, and I think this is the, the real debate in this country. I think there's plenty of debate around it. Um, I think we're in 2.0 or 3.0, you know, and I think we're going to 9.0 on social media uh, and, and how we are dealing with freedom of speech. I think there's a lot that still needs to be worked out. We've had a lot of issues with manipulation. And, and, and ultimately, though, we're a country that does not believe in censorship of the media. We don't believe in this. We, we believe in freedom of speech. So um, uh, back to Facebook, the irony was, of course, Facebook was re-rating higher also because of Facebook shops and this, this structured platform for letting small businesses have uh, the ability to navigate closures and a, a new commercial opportunity. But it really was that it was taking this stance that looked more aligned with the administration. And obviously, that may not be something Facebook feels so good about today, uh, but the stock was performing because of it. Yeah, you know, I, I have a slightly different take. You know, you can, you can roll out the First Amendment if you want. Let's go back and think about what Twitter did. They basically put a tag on misinformation, falsehoods, lies, if you will, about mail-in voting. And this goes back to that conversation that we were having with Mike Jaskin about corporate leaders kind of leading on the social front. Well, if you think about that misinformation about mail-in voting, who does that hurt? It, if that's voter suppression, it hurts groups, uh, you know, of minorities and such. And so, you know, this is a huge, huge, uh, important issue at a very important time when we know that these platforms have been co-opted by bad actors to kind of influence our democratic process. So I think, you know, you know, kudos to Zuckerberg if he's going to reevaluate this and kind of fall into line because his platform that has three billion monthly active users is being co-opted for voter suppression, which adversely affects a group of people in our country that are in the streets and unhappy about a lot of injustice put on them. That's not what those platforms should be used for. And so this is really an important time, I think, for the direction of his company. Um, and, you know, kudos again to Evan Spiegel and Jack Dorsey for getting out in front of this. And I suspect Zuckerberg will fall in line and will face the ire of the president. But you know what? That's how you stay on the right side of history, in we, my opinion. We got some breaking news, guys. We want to go back to Julia Borson. Breaking news on the NFL. Julia. Yes, um, another example of a company backtracking here. The NFL coming out with a post and a video from Roger Goodell saying, quote, we, the, the Twitter post saying, quote, we, the NFL, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the NFL, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier encourage, and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the NFL, believe black lives matter. Hashtag inspire change. This, of course, referring to the outcry um, over the taking of a knee of those uh, NFL players uh, in, in, you know, and the controversy that that sparked.
Wow. Uh, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Um, Guy, it's, it's, this is a huge reversal. I mean, this really, this impacted the season. It impacted ratings. It's a very big issue. Um, Guy, what do you think? I think it's about time. I think, you know, the pressure on Roger Goodell must have been tremendous, but I think it's about time that the NFL, you know, w wakes up to the fact that, you know, there are problems without question. And, you know, again, I'm going to get added at this, but for me, you know, Colin Kaepernick was never about disrespecting the flag, and I think more and more people are waking up to that. And finally, the NFL is as well. It's going to be interesting to see if there's blowback from the administration on this one. This, this to me, just gets into um, also some level of, of uh, tactical corporate responsibility um, because you believe it um, or you believe it's in the best interest of your product. Um, and I, I don't mean to be cynical about the NFL, but the NFL has not, uh, they've been a follower, not a leader. Um, whereas, you know, the NBA seems to be a lot more in touch with its constituency. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a critical, uh, it's a critical issue, but, but ultimately uh, I think the NFL has a couple issues. It's a, it, it, I think baseball is the American pastime, but I think there's a lot of people that would fight me on that and, and believe it may be football. Um, football is an incredible game, um, but I, I think the NFL has had a couple major social issues uh, related to health and social responsibility mm -hmm. um, that at some point have heard it at the gate and have heard it with advertisers. And it's something it's it's you know, that's how tactically I think decisions get made. All right. Coming up, we have the last hot story of the week. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Fast Money Five. We are counting down the five big stories of the week. Our final story, the day trader boom. This week's rally making a lot of people, a lot of you out there may be rich, including newbie day traders. But what have they been buying? Let's get to CNBC's Kate Rooney for that story. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Top of the retail trading list this week, airlines. American Spirit and Delta Airlines were among the top 10 stocks bought on Robinhood this week. That's according to Robin Track, which tracks moves on the millennial heavy trading app Robinhood in real time. Hertz was another big standout. Its holdings on Robinhood have almost doubled since the car rental company filed for bankruptcy last week. Luckin Coffee, another controversial stock, made the top 10 on Robinhood as well. And MGM Resorts, another top buy on Robinhood. That stock seen a 25% pop as its properties began to reopen. Meanwhile, on SoFi, which is majority traders 18 to 40 years old, investors were also big on airlines. That platform saw a 100% increase in airline stocks this week. They also saw a big jump in online gambling with DraftKings and Game Accounts Network. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thank you. A lot of this makes sense. People um, are using some stimulus money for, for uh, trading. And, and, Dan, you brought up the point earlier. There aren't any sports to bet on, so what are you going to do? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I saw uh, Jason Robbins, CEO of DraftKings, um, on the network the other day, and he was asked the question whether without Daily Fantasy, without some of the sports betting that's recently become legal in a bunch of states, whether some of their customers are going into the stock market. And I think that is clearly it. If you're inclined to bet on sports, 
then the idea of betting on a stock on a regulated platform seems uh, probably pretty palatable, you know, at the end of the day. So, you know, to me, you know, a lot of this stuff has been gamified. You know, our friend uh, Davey Day Trader, um, you know, uh, has has a pretty big following. I would just say, is that entertainment? Is it like Twitch? Is it like following um, <laughs> a, a, an e-gamer or something like that? It could be. I suspect that the retail interest dies down a little bit now that we're back at highs and once sports come back a little bit. I mean, some of these moves, as Kate had mentioned, they're just, I mean, I don't know what to call them except for maybe stupid. I mean, take Hertz, for instance. Hertz is trading at a level that is higher than when it filed for bankruptcy. It, things just don't make sense for some of these moves for some of these stocks, Tim. Yeah, look, I, I agree on Hertz. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll dovetail what Dan was saying. I mean, I, I was going to say uh, two words, El Presidente, uh, in terms of <laughs> Dave Portnoy. I mean, Boeing. I mean, this this the, I want to party with you, cowboy. I mean, this guy was 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 laying it on the line during some difficult days. And and that's what if we're going to, I think, probably unfairly mischaracterize a lot of retail. Um, and, and by the way, Dave's ticket sizes are not retail. Um, so uh, but but. You know, there's some sense that it's it's about shooting from the hip and it's some sense that there's a love of volatility. Now, there's a love of volatility when there's upside. I, I would caution that this is a very dangerous market um, and it's been a lot of fun for people that have been long and, and people are looking at their their E-Trade and Schwab accounts tonight and feeling pretty good going into the weekend. And they may have a great weekend because of it. Um, I, I would just caution that uh, this is a very dangerous market. I, I'd like to believe that's part of how we've we've paced this. When you talk about airlines, uh, I think the, the reason why a lot of retail um, took the view, and it's something that we've talked about, is they have a horizon bet. They're willing to make a call that they believe people will start flying again. And in some cases, they wanted to make that ETF call. Uh, in some cases, they picked some of the best of breed. But uh, please be careful. Yeah. Guy? I'm still trying to figure out who these food fighters are that Dan talked about before. I've been using my Google machine and I can't find them you, you anywhere. I'm in, sure they're a wonderful band. You're typing in food but. fighters, right? That's is that what you're typing in? That's what Dan in? said. That, that might fighters. be a problem, right? That's yeah. not. It's problematic. Come on, maybe. <laughs> you know, just to, just to go back to an earlier thing, and this this harkens back to I think our second or third story. And I'm a big fan of Leo Tolstoy, as you probably are, you Mel, as you went to the Harvard University, but. You know, just think about this as we head into the weekend. Everybody thinks about changing the world, but no one thinks about changing him or herself. Think about that. Those are deep thoughts for a Friday evening show when we're talking about day trading. I mean, really, Too very, very me. deep, right? I mean, what, would it be Meta, Dan? Is that what you're saying on the call earlier today? You know, listen, another great Foo, another great Foo Fighters song, Long Road to Ruin. So uh, to, to Tim's point, it is a very dangerous market out there. All right, guys, great to have but you. Learning Thank to you. Fly is their best song. Guy, Tim, and Dan, that does it for this special hour of Fast Money. Stick around, though. CNBC special report, Crisis in America, starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.